for your support. And I'll take those questions in California at 3.30 on November 2nd. Basically, it's a presentation. Um, they've, they've tailored it in here that they also um, spoke at Allen on meeting in the, uh, cross, at Crossroads Church as well. And it's Ralph Reddy. Uh, he is a guest speaker and author of Underground Recovery Book. And this is with me. How's everybody doing this evening? Y'all doing good? Um, fan is my family, and hopefully that this is going to be part of your family as well. You know, we're trying to make a difference. Has anyone been paying attention to what's happening with Governor Snyder and new laws that are being signed? Anybody aware of that? So we have this Good Samaritan law, so it's don't run, call 911. That sound familiar at all? So it used to be like a really bad idea if you were a person that was using illegal drugs and your friend was turning blue in a house. You thought to yourself, should I call for an ambulance or call for help? And you think to yourself, do I want a felony charge? And so you might actually leave that person to die. In fact, you might have three people watching somebody die, and all three people actually leave to watch them die. And that's not right. We had a law before that was basically, if you got an MIP, or if you were drinking underage at a university, right? About 15 years ago, <clears throat> you're on a campus, your friend's drinking too much, he passes out. And all of a sudden, you think, well, my friend might die, so I'm going to go to the emergency room with my friend. Good intentions, and guess what happens? You guys both leave with two MIPs. So what began happening at those universities? Anyone want to guess? People started dying, right? And so it should not be a crime to call for help. That's a very important concept. Um, has anybody lost someone that they love and care about due to an overdose? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And I have two. And so that's not right. Let's try to make something that's wrong right today. Um, there's a term called sublimation. It's a fancy defense mechanism. It's when you take lemons and turn them into lemonade. And so many of us have lost someone to addiction. Many of us have fought addiction ourselves or have dealt with it in our household. And it's a very difficult thing to deal with. Um, my story kind of begins with a friend named Jerry. And so my close high school friend, Jerry, we grew up together, and he married a woman named Kimmy. And Kimmy and Jerry were doing heroin together. And... Uh, I kind of went on my direction, my sober direction, kind of left them alone. And one day I get a phone call from Kimmy, right? She says to me, Raj, I got really bad news. And I'm like, well, what's going on? She goes, Jerry died of a heroin overdose in the Chrysler stamping plant. And I'm like, no, Kimmy, no. And she goes, well, the story gets worse. I'm thinking, how the hell can the story get any worse? She goes, well, I'm doing heroin and I'm pregnant. I'm like, no, no, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And so I picked her up and brought her to her first NA meeting. I helped get her sober while she was pregnant, and she had a pregnancy, and the baby was healthy and fit. And so, you know, a few months after that, you know, I buried my friend. We go to St. Anastasia's Church in Troy for the Godfather ceremony. And so I'm there. Kimmy's still wearing her wedding band on her finger. We walk up there to the front of the church congregation. It's about 9 o'clock in the, in the morning on a Saturday. I'm there. Jerry's family's there, and Kimmy's family's there. And the priest walks up, he's about 70 years old, and he points at me, he goes, who are you? And I go, I'm the godfather. Looks at Kimmy and he sees the wedding band and goes, where's the father at? So Kimmy kind of looks down and she's like, um, he can't be here today. And so the priest picks up the baby and walks away. And as he's walking away, he says out loud, I can't understand why the father of this Christian child is not here on the most important day of this Christian child's life. And Kimmy just loses it. She has a complete breakdown. She grabs this arm right here, and she's sobbing and, and crying uncontrollably. And she says under her breath, because he died of a heroin overdose. So in that moment, how do I describe how I felt? Um, anger at, never, at levels I'd never experienced before. I wanted to grab addiction and choke him out and kill him. Right, that was my first thought. Then I couldn't find him around anywhere. It was called an epiphany, a sudden awareness. Addiction killed my friend. Now what am I going to do about it? So I began to think, what am I going to do about it? I'm sober. That's nice. You know, it's kind of a good thing. Family's happy. Friends are happy. Kimmy's happy. So is my little godson here. But what about the next level? What about making a difference for everybody else that's been lost? And so I thought to myself, we've got to go to grad school. We've got to go to grad school and get, and get a degree so my credibility is there. i got plenty of street credibility. That wasn't the issue. Now I need that book credibility, that education. 
So I applied to U of M Ann Arbor, and I got in their program, the number one program for social work in the nation, and I graduated with a 4.0. And so I'm studying with other people and reading the preface of the book. And so there's a lot of women in my program, and they go, Raj, why are you reading the preface of the book? That's not going to be on the test. And I said, yeah, because, see, you're here to get an education and get a job. I'm here to get an education to fight addiction. We're at a whole other different level. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm not really in, in your world. So when I graduate here with a 4.0, it's not because we're competition. It's because my competition is addiction, and I can't lose. Is that making sense? So that's what kind of drove me. Um, you know, we talk about addiction and different drugs, and so all drugs are not created equal. What's different about heroin? They want to say something different about heroin because marijuana isn't the same as heroin. Cocaine isn't the same as heroin. What is particularly bad about narcotic drugs and the drug itself, heroin? It kills people. And watch this. 25% of people that try heroin just one time become completely physically addicted. That's a really mean drug. Think about it. 25% of people minding their own business, being at a party, having a cute boyfriend, having a cute girlfriend. Hey, I want to do that heroin with that guy to fit in. And 25% of those people are going to be having a lifelong physical addiction to a drug. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? And drug dealers know that's why right now if you go down to Detroit and you bump into the right person at the right time, you might get a free sample of heroin. You guys know I'm not making that up, right? The samples do go around, right? Okay, Pontiac in Detroit. So imagine me, I got a very, very difficult job. I go to different high schools and colleges and make presentations. And my job, I get you know, maybe an hour of a group's time, an hour of a high school's time. And my job is to make drugs and alcohol bad and uncool and sobriety and recovery cool. Imagine that job. Imagine walking in front of a bunch of high school students and saying, drugs are bad, have a great day, don't use them, just say no. Is that going to work? The marketing for sobriety and the marketing for recovery hasn't been done that great. We have to be honest about that, right? And so when we go to a place like, like a high school or a middle school, that's a big mistake, by the way. Those kids are not so nice. So we go to a middle school, right, and they got their grumpy pants on. They're like, why is this guy here? Why is he talking about drugs? Why is he wasting my time? I should be talking to my friends. And the, and the bottom line is that because it makes a difference, Prevention is more important than treatment. If we can prevent people from becoming heroin addicts, we've done a hell of a lot more than treating a bunch of people after their addiction. So that's why we have to get into those schools and get them when they're younger, right? And we have to be honest with each other, too. The D.A.R.E. program doesn't do that. We have to have a better program. Now, Families Against Narcotics program does that, and it makes a big difference as well. And so drugs and alcohol sell themselves. I meet lots of drug dealers as clients and from other past experiences and stuff. And some drug dealers will actually tell you that I'm really special and I'm a drug dealer. And if I was running IBM, I would be really successful. And that's when you got to say no. In fact, only 10% of drug dealers could actually do anything else but drug dealing. And you know why? And not being mean. Because drug dealing isn't that hard. You don't have to punch in. You don't have to be consistent. You don't have to be reliable. The drugs sell themselves. Is that making sense? And so a lot of people that sell drugs don't want to hear that. Now watch this. Recovery and sobriety is very difficult to market and sell because even when you're giving it away, a lot of people don't want it because it's scary. You're asking me to change my life. You're asking me to change my friends. You're asking me to change my entire identity. You know, on the streets, I feel like I'm somebody. On the streets, I got drug connections. On the streets, that's familiar. You want me to go to a bunch of meetings and talk about how I'm feeling? You want me to go see a therapist and tell them about you know, what my ideas are and what my childhood was like? That's really scary. And for a lot of people, that unfamiliarity holds them back from getting help. And so we've got to fight against the, this way of, of looking in the old-fashioned method of just making drugs and alcohol a bad thing. We've got to make sobriety a good thing. So let me show you a T-shirt, right? So you guys might have seen this around. And of course, Midge is my awesome model that models this T-shirt. So on the front, drug-free fists, right? What's that motto right there? Fortune favors the bold, an ancient gladiator motto. Imagine the t-shirt said, I can't get high, I'm on probation. How many would be wearing that t-shirt? <laughs> no, I tried, don't sell, no one wants to wear them, isn't that weird? No, fortune favors the bold, put some drug-free fists on that and the kid wants to wear it. So I gotta be even cooler, okay? Let's co-op and, st and steal some language. Detroit hustle is harder. Hustles harder can be co-opted. It can mean spiritually hustles harder, right? It can be karmically hustles harder, academically hustles harder, 
Recovery hustle is harder. Here's where it gets controversial. So you get a lot of young people that come to see me, and I give them this T-shirt, and the kids love it. And mom rolls her eyes and goes, why are you giving him that horrible T-shirt? I go, just be patient. And then six months later, I ask mom, hey, mom, how do you feel about that T-shirt? He's got six months sober. Raj, I love your T-shirt. You see my point? We've got to market this stuff, right? We've got to make being sober cool. And on top of that, I, I wrote a book on addiction. And the purpose of writing this book, I was working at Eastwood Clinic, okay? It's called Drug Free. It's available on Amazon. We're going to give a bunch of copies away. Kathy will give them away. I'm working at Eastwood Clinic, and a lot of people that are there were in drug court in Macomb County, right? And so they're required to be at Eastwood Clinic. And if they don't stay there and behave themselves, they go out to jail or prison. So I'm handing out, you guys know what Hazelton is? Famous treatment center, they have all kinds of you know, public paperwork like the Hazelton acceptance stuff, four-step guides, all your really basic, generic, soft stuff, right? It's not controversial, it's not really exciting stuff to read. So I'm handing out my Hazelton literature to my drug court clients, and one kid who's done a bunch of prison time, baseball cap backwards, you know, t-shirt on, tattoos, throws it back at me and goes, I'm not reading this shit. Now I could have said, I'm a therapist and you're here on drug court, you're going to do whatever you say. That's unsophisticated. I'm trying to figure stuff out. I said, well, why won't you read it? He goes, first of all, I can't relate to it. And second of all, I have a reading disability. And everything that you give me, there's not a single picture on it. I'm like, whoa, never thought about that. You know, making assumptions, assuming everybody can read really well. Everybody loves to read Hazleton stuff. So I said to him, I said, well, you know, what if I wrote something? He goes, if you write it, I'll read it. And I said, okay, bet. Next week when I see you here, I'm going to a bunch of stuff. And that's how those first handouts began. And that's how this book began. Because I couldn't find a book that people are actually going to read from cover to cover to understand what addiction is all about. So marketing sobriety is very difficult. And it ties into we have a song for sobriety, we have a gladiator concept for sobriety, and we have a book for sobriety as well. Is that making sense? Okay. Um, moving on, let's talk about addiction, get, get a basic bit of information here. I know that I love about Families Against Narcotics, they want to destroy the stigma, right? There's a stigma to addiction that holds a lot of people from getting back, and a lot of people get mistreated because of their stigma. So let me ask you a question. If I came down in a spaceship from Mars and asked you people in this room, I've been watching a lot of television, reality television and stuff like that. You guys have addiction down here. Please describe to me and tell me what addiction is. Any thoughts? Say it out loud. Altering. Yes. Altering. What else? Symptoms. Symptoms. What else? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Does it make families cry and people get upset? Does it cause people to lose relationships? Does it cause people to not reach their full potential? Right. Wow. So there's ignorant people that don't believe that addiction is a disease. Now I can go and make that very simple. Here's the problem with that premise. Because people that are addicts have different brain scans than non-addicts, right away, if you change your brain scans, that's an addiction, that's a disease, right? But we're going a little more simpler than that. According to the American Medical Association, for anything to be a disease, it must meet two criteria. What's the criteria? Symptoms and treatable. Is that making sense? Right, so if a person's got diabetes, right, they got high blood sugar, and how do they treat it? Insulin, right? It's a treatable disease. And so having symptoms isn't good enough. You've got to be treatable. So imagine I'm trying to take some stereotypes out to give us an extreme example. Imagine a homeless drug addict alcoholic, right? A person that has no place to live and is panhandling for change every day for their fix and for their alcohol, right? Imagine because every disease can have a different stage. A person in stage one cancer, they can be right in front of you. And they, oh, this person doesn't even look ill. A person in stage four cancer, well, how do they appear? Very, very sick, right? So imagine a person that's homeless, homeless alcoholic and addict, that's a stage four alcoholic and addict. So what's different about a stage four alcoholic and addict than a normal person physically? Ill. Ill, absolutely. How do they look? They don't look so good, they don't smell so good, and they don't dress so good, right? And you can kind of identify them and say, that person right there has got something going on. So imagine if this person is on, on the streets, okay? And imagine what's on his mind. If I'm a heroin addict, and I'm walking around with a pocket full of heroin, what am I thinking about? Where do I get more heroin? If I'm an alcoholic, and I'm on skid row, and I'm drinking alcohol, 
What am I thinking about? Where do I get more alcohol? So I'm obsessed with the drug 24-7, right? So when a person's obsessed, how's it going to affect their mind? It's going to cause anxiety. When you leave anxiety untreated, it turns into what? Depression. So a person's got an obsession with the drug, right? They have high anxiety and they have high depression. Let's go even deeper. Can we assume that a person that's homeless must have burnt a lot of bridges? Is that a fair assumption? And to be homeless in America, in general, you got to burn. Mom and dad don't want to talk to you. Brother and sister say we're done with you. The boss says we're done with you, right? So you burnt a lot of bridges, right? So can we assume that that person at some point in time said to somebody like their mom or their dad or their brother, I'm, I'm going to stop this. I'm going I'm to stop drinking. I'm, I'm going to stop using heroin. And they meant it. In that very moment, they looked that person in the eye and they really meant it. If I kept making promises to you and I kept breaking those promises... How's it going to affect my self-esteem? How about my self-efficacy? How about my self-confidence? It's going to go down, right? So I got low self-esteem, low self-confidence, high anxiety, high depression, obsession with the drug. What do you think I'm going to do all day long? Is that making sense? And what about socially? How does being an alcoholic or an addict impact relationships with other people? We lose friends, right? And we drive the families away. Is that making sense? And so a person is on the football team, and the football team says, Ross, you're smoking way too much pot. You're holding the team down. You've got to stop smoking pot. So now I'm in this dilemma. I can stop smoking pot and stay on the team, or I can find a brand-new set of friends that will say what? Raj, you smoke just the right amount of pot. You hang out with us. You're absolutely fine. Don't listen to those jocks over there. Is that making sense? How about legally? If I'm an alcoholic or an addict, how can that impact me in contact with law enforcement? Anybody have a theory on that? Why are alcoholics and addicts of, of increased in interest to police department? Why is that? It's just a weird thing, isn't it? Right. So a guy's got one DUI. It's about 50-50 they're an alcoholic. you got two DUIs. There's a 75% chance you're an alcoholic. you got three DUIs. It's 95% plus. So imagine a guy comes into my office with three DUIs. I'm not big on giving labels. They can come to my office and I'm say, oh my God, you're an alcoholic, and if you don't admit it right now, I'm going to give you more and more sessions. It doesn't work that way. I say to the man, you know, here's the deal. You've got three DUIs in 10 years. This one is a felony. It's going to affect your ability to be a stockbroker. I think that you have a serious alcohol problem, and you're an alcoholic. And a couple times, what do those guys say to me? I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just really unlucky. <laughs> oh shit, really? So you do mean like globally unlucky, like every area of your life unlucky, you leave my office sip and fall and break your nose and spill your milk unlucky? Or do you just mean unlucky when you got alcohol in your system? Because I'm not really feeling your unluckiness. Is that making sense? A lot of people would prefer to be unlucky than to prefer to be an addict, right? Because if I'm an addict, I gotta do something about that. If I'm an alcoholic, I gotta do something about that. If I just have bad luck. I just got to kind of be patient, wait for my luck to change, right? Is that making sense? All right. How about financially? If I'm an alcoholic or an addict, over a period of time, how's it going to affect my finances? Up or down? Please don't say up. You don't, say, don't say up. The, the finances are going to go down, right? Any other examples? Finances. Usually increased medical bills. Right. More medical bills, right? So watch this. Broke, high credit card bills, not paying their taxes, borrowing money from you guys, right? Those are the financial implications of being an alcoholic or an addict. We call it the high cost of low living. Now, what about um, spiritually? What about being an alcoholic or an addict? How does it impact a person's values and morals and beliefs in a higher power over a period of time? It goes down, right? I could be raised from a really good Catholic family, and as my addiction gets worse and worse, I might even say, well, where's God? Why would he do this to me? Why has he forsaken me? Turn people that were very spiritual into atheists, right? Or make people actually not believe at all. And so that's a pretty mean-spirited thing. Um, just tying this into what I deal with, you know, um, right now, because of heroin addiction, we really see a shift in who that we see. And so oftentimes I have a few female clients, and I'll give you two in particular, but one of them, the same scenario kind of repeats itself over and over again. It's like a template of what happened before. And so this young lady comes to see me, and here's a story on her. She had a boyfriend that was we called super cool boyfriend. That means baseball cap backwards, the gauge earrings, lots of tattoos. She brings this boy to her house in West Bloomfield, and mom and dad do what? 
oh my God, who is this guy, right? They go crazy on this guy. And the more they complain about him, what does she do? I love him. We're going to have babies together. It's going to be awesome, right? Mom and dad are like dying, right? And so super cool boyfriend, you know, unlike this West Bloomfield girl who only smokes marijuana on the weekends and drinks a few beers, right? But super cool boyfriend, what's he into? He's into heroin, right? Got that little sick coolness factor to it. And of course he plays guitar. You guys know that. He plays guitar and he does heroin, right? And one day he's going to be a rock star and take her to Hollywood. Oh, anyway, so... He's doing heroin, and at some point, she walks in on her super cool boyfriend as he's leaning to get the baseball cap backwards, and she sees him with a needle in his arm. Now, what would be a healthy female response to seeing the boy that she loves sticking a needle in his arm? What should she have said? Bye. Bye. What are you doing? Are you seriously messed up? What's your major malfunction? You're using heroin. You've got to go get help. I can't be with you. You might have a whole bunch of diseases, right? Not being mean, right? And instead of saying that and having that healthy aversion, what does she say? I want to know what that feels like. I want to share what you feel. I want to feel everything that you feel. I want to share us all experiences together so we can be as one. And now, here's a chance for a man to be your hero. Remember my, my philosophy, if you don't like this, but I can judge any man by the condition of his woman. That's deep. I can judge any man by the condition of his woman. If you walk into my office and your wife has a black eye, I'm not effing impressed with you, right? And so here's a chance for a man to be a hero. He can say to his girlfriend, what? I would never give you heroin. I would never give my mom heroin. Heroin is the devil. Heroin is a poison. It's ruined so many people's lives. Uh, you can't get any heroin from me. And he could have been a hero that day. But nine times out of ten, what does a super cool boyfriend do? Shoots her up. Now we got Bonnie and Clyde running around stealing shit all day long, and they're not very good at it. Look, I don't judge people, right? You can watch a YouTube video of a guy rapping, right? And I'm leaving with a comment section. And I say to people, man, please stop rapping. You're really bad at it. You know, pick up a banjo, you know, maybe go to grad school, but please stop rapping. It's really, really uncomfortable for me to listen to you rap. And the same thing with people that can't steal well. If you're not good at stealing stuff, just don't do that. It's not your skill set. And so these two guys get wrapped up in felony charges very, very quickly, right? And they go off to jail. Now, this is a point for that young lady to get help. But here's where it gets really twisted. You'd think that the guy would do this. But nine times out of ten, one of her female friends say to her, hey, your boyfriend's in jail and you're strung out on heroin. you got a $200 a day habit. Hey, you're really cute. Why don't you go on Backpages.com and become a hooker and make lots of money for your heroin? No. And so this young lady, being unsophisticated, not very streetwise, not very clever, does that, and then really, really bad things happen to her. Just use your imagination. Really, really bad things happen to her. Then it becomes my job to put her back together again. And that takes two and three and four years, and it never had to happen, and it really pisses me off. Is that making sense? Okay. Just trying to be real with people here, right? I have permission to tell the truth in this room? Yes. I get in trouble for telling the truth. It's a really weird part of my life. I just tell true things and people get angry at me sometimes. I'm not trying to make anybody angry. I'm just trying to tell the truth, right? If I say it's like 70 degrees outside, you guys shouldn't be angry at me, right? Okay. All right. Um, so what is addiction? Addiction is the inability to get high successfully. And people want to hear that. What does that mean? It means that when you get high, there's physical problems. When you're in acting, you get high, there's mental problems. There's anxiety and depression. When you get high, your friends leave you. Your mom cries. When you get high, law enforcement shows up. When you get high, you ain't got no money. When you get high, you break your morals and your values. Is that making sense? It's the inability to get high successfully. That's the main hallmark of addiction. And so when we talk about stigmas and addiction, you know, I try watching different TV shows and trying to learn more and more about what addiction is. Does anybody know who Dr. Phil is? Right. So you guys know he's a quack, right? As, as a licensed therapist for the state of Michigan, I can say to you, he's not a licensed psychologist, and he's, he's a goofball, maybe? He's just a, I don't know, he's a performer, he's an entertainer. So I'm watching this show, and they, they kind of talk about a woman with heroin addict son comes on Dr. Phil to get help. So I thought to myself, wow, this is a great opportunity to see something really, really cool. So the woman's complaining about her daughter. She's been in five different treatment centers, and she doesn't stop using heroin, and she's prostituting herself, and she's overdosed a bunch of times. And Dr. Phil, will you please help her? They show a little video vignette of her, and she's an attractive young woman. So she comes on stage, right? She comes on stage, and what does Dr. Phil say to her in front of everybody? You're a junkie whore. 
And you know how I can tell that you're lying? Because your lips are moving. Now I can get you to stop lying? Stop asking you questions. I'm like, no. No, that's bullying. That's mistreatment. That's not therapy. That's not right. And the worst part of this, the audience is clapping. Clapping as they call her a whore. Clapping as they call her a lying drug addict. And clapping as she begins to cry. And then he says, are you prepared to do whatever I tell you to do? Wow. Wow, you're not, you're not my, my mentor, you're not my partner, you're now my, my master, and I have to listen. Imagine her pathology and what she's been through, and this older white male is telling her, you will do whatever I tell you to do. And I got this uncomfortable feeling, and I'm like, no, because I'm not even a woman, and I'm not even stupid. It doesn't make any sense. I'm thinking to myself, if I was a woman watching that TV show, you'll never get me to get help from a therapist. I'll never go to anybody. I'd rather die of an overdose. And I can't tell you how many people that I've met with that have been mistreated in the treatment field, that have been yelled at and mistreated and, and called names and treated harshly. You know, that's not therapy. You know, Hazelton made a huge bunch of mistakes in the 70s and 80s. When they were doing therapy in Hazelton, they had what's called the hot seat. You sat in the hot seat in the middle of the group, and there was 12 people there, and each person took turns talking about you in a negative light how you were not going to stay sober, how you were a bad parent, how you were a loser, how you were stupid, how you were ugly, how you were fat. And then the premise was, supposedly, you'd hear all that stuff and have a magical epiphany and go, oh my God, they're right, I'll stop using drugs. And instead what happened? The relapse rates went through the roof. So it took him a decade to figure this shit out. So now we have something that's very different. We have somebody sit in the middle, right? And we talk about all the things that are good about them, affirmations, you know, what we like about you, about your unlimited potential, you know, how smart you are, how you're going to be a great mother, how you're going to stop using drugs and alcohol and be successful, you know, building people up fights addiction. Addiction is defeated by love, caring, and spirituality, gratitude, right, and faith. And addiction loves, loves resentments, angers, and fears. If I can give you resentments of the past and anger of the present and fear of the future, I can drive you back to using. And so we got to fight those types of feelings. Is that making sense? So to drive this home a little bit further um, with stigma, so I'm watching this director of a place called Dawn Farms talk about addiction and addiction 101. So I'm like very excited, like, wow, an educated man, you know, therapist is going to talk about addiction 101. So in the very beginning, he says, you know, we should stop stigmatizing addicts. It's not a moral disease. It's not an issue of criminality. It's an issue of a, of a medical illness. I'm like, cool, I can understand this guy, right? And as he's talking about half an hour later, what happens? He says this story. He's talking a little bit more loosely, and he's joking with the audience. He says, yeah, addicts are all crazy. I can tell you, they're all nuts. They come into our, you know, in our place, and one guy was told if he uses one more time, he's going to go to prison for two years. And so he ran off from a treatment center, and he smoked crack and did two years for smoking crack just one more time. They're all crazy. Oh, and guess what, audience? How can you tell if an addict is lying? Their lips are moving, and the audience begins to laugh and clap. And he goes, and, and, and all addicts are liars, and all addicts are lying, and clap, 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 clap. And, but you just told me 30 minutes ago that you, you shouldn't do that told me that wasn't right, and now you're reinforcing those stereotypes. Let me tell you a little secret. Addicts and alcoholics don't lie any more than a general population when they're not using drugs or alcohol. That's some deep stuff right there. That's really deep, because I know lots of them, and when they're sober, you know, ask Lou, he can tell you. They don't lie any more than the regular population that's floating around here. It's the ones that are using their lying because it's part of their denial. Is that making sense? All right, so we're going to do something, I hope it's a little bit timely. The zombie look, right? So we can take one and pass it through. Because it's Halloween, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, zombie paradigm to heroin addiction. This is being talked about to break stigma. Let me ask you guys a question. Um, the term heroin addict scares people, right? The term zombie scares people. Heroin addicts hang out with civilians and infect them, right? Zombies infect innocent people. Heroin addicts experience negative physical transformation, right? Parents talk about this disease. It's like a child's being possessed. It's like a possession. They physically, mentally, spiritually are no longer, you know, recognizable. Um, 
Number four, heroin addicts experience mindless slavery to their drug of choice. Zombies experience a mindless, insatiable quest for more brains. Heroin addicts have a gravelry, lowered voice. You can hear when someone's on a drug, right? You can hear what pot smokers sound like, what people that are drunk sound like, and what a person on opiates sounds like. Their voice sounds completely different. And so we hear that change in voice. Heroin addicts have no future time orientation. When they do studies on heroin addicts, right, they know it's one thing very important about them. They don't think about their lives in terms of the future. If you go three months out, six months out, and one year out, what's your one-year plan? What's your two-year plan? What's your five-year plan? When you're in active heroin addiction, you can't even think about that, right? Because the thinking about that becomes so uncomfortable. You know you're strung out to the gills. You operate on a 24 clock or a 12-hour clock. Every 12 hours, must get heroin. Get money, get heroin, go to sleep. Get money, get heroin, go to sleep. Life becomes very small and compacted when we're using. Is that making sense? And as you get sober, you can break free from that. Um, heroin addicts have shortened time horizons and an insensitivity to future consequences. And zombies don't fear consequences and don't plan for the future. Heroin addicts don't feel. You know, why do people abuse drugs and alcohol? Anybody have a theory on that? Yeah. Change how they feel. Take a you know, good feeling and being at a party, making it higher. More. More good feeling. Taking a sad feeling like being lonely and making it less. Taking a whole bunch of uncomfortable feelings and knocking themselves out and making yourself completely numb. That's why we say about in addiction, who's every act's favorite Star Trek character? Spock. Because Spock doesn't feel. Is that making sense? So acts don't like to feel. They can change how they feel in three seconds. That's why we don't have any patience, right? You're like, hey, wait in this line for five minutes at, you know, Myers. I can't do that, you know? Why can't you wait for five minutes? Because I can change how I feel in three seconds with a needle. Why would I ever want to feel uncomfortable? Is that making sense? Um, heroin addicts don't feel much and don't have emotions, but they are physically present, but they're emotionally unavailable. And so that's our little zombie paradigm talking about addiction. Um, I want to cover a few other items here. And, uh, how do we get to this point? How do we get to the issue where we have so much heroin addiction going on in America, right? In the, in the 60s and 70s, it was around... And right now, heroin overdoses, uh, the deaths have increased at least uh, 100% in the last two years. And so how did this happen? How come heroin is available everywhere and easy to access at $10 a pack? Anybody have a theory on that? Because of the opioids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really bad now because of the people that begin heroin addiction nowadays aren't your stereotypical inner city kids that were hanging around heroin, people that were on parole from Jackson, and that was just one of the things you're not supposed to do. That's why you did it. Addiction now is different. People begin with Vicodin, right, with codeine, with cough syrup, with Oxycontin, with morphine, with fentanyl, and that becomes very expensive. And all of a sudden now they're into heroin because heroin is cheaper. In 1985, a pack of heroin in Detroit cost $13 and was about 5 to 7% pure heroin. This is 2014, right? In 2014, heroin is now $10 a pack and about 40% pure. That's unbelievable. Adjusted for the rate of inflation, heroin is really about $5 a pack right now and three times as potent. Right now, the Mexican cartels you know, control the heroin that comes into the U.S. and so do the Colombians. Only about 10% of the heroin that comes here comes from Afghanistan. That's remarkable. And so a lot of people make a lot of money off of heroin. And so banks are involved, and, and so are lots of these drug cartels. Right now, the analysis of the drug cartels in Mexico, if they wanted to, they could go to war with the Mexican army and destroy the Mexican army. They have more soldiers in the major drug cartels than all the Mexican army combined. That's amazing. And there's billionaire drug dealers in Mexico right now just kind of hanging out, making sure that Americans get their drugs on time and of a very high quality and consistently. Unlike the Colombians, the Colombians made a mess. When they came to Miami, they were shooting and killing everybody. So the DEA came down on them. They, they messed everything up. The Mexicans don't do any of their really bad stuff on our side of the border. They'll bring you back on their side of the border and cut your head off. They'll kidnap you, bring you over there to keep the heat off of them, right? They aren't really big on doing dramatic stuff over here in the U.S. So they keep their business model very, very strict. Is that making sense? So how did we get here? Well, a drug called Oxycontin and Purdue Pharma. And Purdue Pharma had a bunch of pharmaceutical reps that went around to all these different doctors and said, hey, doctors, you're making a huge mistake. And they're like, what are we doing wrong? They're like, you aren't giving people enough pain pills. Everybody's in pain. We have studies that show that all your, all your clients are in pain. They need more pain pills. And so they were able to convince these doctors to prescribe this new drug called Oxycontin. 
And they said to the doctors, they lied to them. They said, it's non-addictive or very little addictive. It's very difficult to abuse because it has a time prevention mechanism inside of it. And, and studies show it's much less harmful and addicting than any other painkiller. And they outright lie to people. And so what happened when the U.S. government took the Purdue Pharma Company to court and said, we have evidence that you lied to people and created false graphs and information and got people strung out and killed on this drug? And what did Purdue Pharma say? Well, here's the deal. We're going to plead guilty to all that, but only as a misdemeanor. And nobody in our group can go to jail. Like, what? Nobody at all at Purdue Pharma can go to jail. If you guys know a little bit about jail, you can go to jail in Oakland County for violating an MIP probation, right? You can go 90 days in jail in Oakland County for your first DUI. So these people are saying, we are so special and different than the rest of the peasant class out there that we can't go to jail at all. And the U.S. government said, yeah, you know, you're right. You are special and different, and laws don't apply to you. So how about you give us $700 million as a fine? And Purdue Pharma says, yeah, we'll do that. So they gave them $700 million as a fine, and they said, we're very sorry, and they walked away with billions of dollars in profits. Is that amazing? Please say that's amazing. I'm not making this stuff up. So these organizations are drug cartels. They're legalized drug cartels. Let me prove a point. Purdue Pharma was told hey, your drug is killing lots of people. Will you please put a gelling mechanism in it? So anybody that's used prescription drugs, what's bad about the gelling mechanism in the current Oxycontin pills? You can't snort them, you can't shoot them. Why? Because you can't snort or shoot jelly, right? When you add water to the pills or you stick them up your nose, they become like a really a jelly consistency and it ruins your day, right? It's true. So here's the deal. Purdue Pharma was asked to do this for 14 years. For 14 years, said, we're working on this, we're trying to get it right, even though other companies have been doing this since the 50s. So 14 years into this, I meet with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And this guy's making a presentation. He's got a really pretty graph. He's a very educated guy, works for BC and BS. He goes, one month we were kind of analyzing uh, opium, opiate prescriptions, and we noticed a 40% drop in Oxycontin prescriptions. I'm like, no shit. So 40% drop in Oxycontin prescriptions. He goes, so we couldn't figure out what happened that month. So we contacted Purdue Pharma. That was the month they did what? They reformulated their Oxycontin, which means that even with Blue Cross and Blue Shield, legitimate company, 40% of all their Oxycontin prescriptions were bogus, and the Opanas went through the roof. Is that making sense? So now we have a new drug. You guys hear about this new drug, this new Vicodin drug called Zohydro? That's sexy, isn't it? Zohydro and Roxycontin, all these pretty names. And so Zohydro was going to be introduced as a new drug. It's equal to 10 Vicodins. Great idea, right? Time-controlled, time 10 Vicodins in a pill. Of course we need that, right? And so the FDA advisory panel of doctors, what did they say about this idea? No, no. We, we, 11 out of 13 doctors said no. 11 out of 13 said no way. You're crazy. You've lost your mind. But we'll consider uh, saying yes to this drug if you add that gelling agent to it. And what did the Zohydro people say? Okay. You can't do that, we're so sorry. Now we're gonna work on that. And so what did the FDA um, director say? Of course you can have your Zohydro with no gelling mechanism, and it's been approved this month, equal to 10 Vicodins. But it gets even more twisted. Guess what Zogenex actually manufactures besides this Zohydro? Vivitrol. Oh my God. Yeah. What's Vivitrol? That's a shot you get in your butt once a month and you can't get high off any narcotic. That's amazing. It's $1,200 a shot. There's no generic. You get one shot in your butt and you can't get high off any narcotic for 30 days. So I'm not dumb, but I'm trying to understand this new business model that can get you coming and going. Let's get you hooked on Zohydro so you're strung out to the gills. Then when you need help, we'll give you a Vivitrol shot in your butt. Is that a fantastic business model? So the FDA was officially not aware of this. So a bunch of moms, like, like FAN, kind of said, hey, what's, what's going on here? You guys lost your mind. So now they're looking into that as a conflict of interest, possibly. Anybody want to bet that the FDA is going to say, that's absolutely fine? Anybody want to bet? Want to bet against me? Isn't that amazing? These companies and these organizations don't work for you anymore. And I, I hate to say this, but you know, as far as doctors go, you know, unless you prove otherwise, you're part of the problem. And if, if you want to talk about it, 
can go out in the parking lot and discuss it with you, you know, person to person, because most of the doctors that I deal with are just pill pushers. Some of the worst drug dealers in our communities have medical degrees. I'm not saying it's right, but I understand why a kid that eats government cheese and has to sell a little bit of weed on the corner so he can have better food to eat and a better apartment and a few nice clothes. I'm not saying it's right, but I can understand that kind of thinking. What I can't understand is why a multimillionaire with a medical degree that swore an oath, remember, drug dealers don't swear any oaths, you guys know that, right? He, this guy swore an oath to do no harm, and he's putting pills on the streets that are killing our kids. I'm not cool with that. Not at all. Because a drug dealer is going to be honest with you. Buy some heroin. If you don't die, come back and buy some more. In a sick way, that's an honest relationship. I don't care about you. I don't care about your future. I just want to get my money tonight. Is that making sense? But a, but a doctor has got a whole bunch of degrees on the wall and a stethoscope and that kind of caring demeanor, like, how are you today? How's your pain level today? Right? So we have this new thing called thought leaders. You guys ever hear about thought leaders before? We're going to kind of camp on that for a second. So Purdue Pharma and the Suboxone people were trying to figure out how can we increase our prescribing. That's a great idea. And so in the old days, in the 70s and 80s, what they would do is go to a very intelligent research doctor, a guy that taught like at Harvard Medical School or at Columbia Medical School. They'd say, hey, very smart doctor, we're going to give you $5,000 to make a presentation on this drug, okay, and tell them about this drug. And so what would happen when they had that doctor talk about that drug and do a presentation? What would he say? He'd tell the truth. He'd say, well, there's benefits and liabilities for this drug, and I recommend that you do use it, but be careful how you use it. And so sales went up a little bit, right? Of course they're going to. Not good enough. So they had this new idea. So they have these really intelligent people that are trained in marketing and Ph.D. psychologists, right? And the psychologist said, you know, back in the communist era of China, the Chinese were able to convert everybody to communism with this thing called thought leader. And they're like, no kidding, tell me all about that. So I said, you don't go to the smartest guy in the village. You don't do that. You go to the guy in the village that has the most friends. Oh, really? Yeah, you go to him and you say, hey, smart guy in the, in the village, we're going to ignore you. But the guy that has all the friends, we're going to give you like, you know, a couple extra bags of rice and talk about how great communism is. And before you know it, he's selling communism to other people. So thought leader worked the same way. They would go to see doctors that were not really great. They had lots and lots of customers and clients. For example, at a treatment center, right? And so they would go to these doctors and say, you know what? You're not respected for the thought leader that you are. You're a pioneer in the field of addiction. You're a brilliant man who needs to be respected and acknowledged for your greatness. So what we're going to do is give you $10,000 and have you go to an Applebee's you're going to sit in the back and we have your PowerPoint all prepared for you and you're going to talk to about five other people and tell them how great Suboxone is. I'm not making this up. Okay? You know, how good uh, Oxycontin is. So imagine some doctors from maybe Brighton Hospital. We're not going to use any names, okay? That wouldn't be fair. So Dr. Mark and Dr. Berger were uh, given this job. And so they went around promoting Suboxone and Oxycontin. No, I misspoke. Suboxone and Subutex. And as they began promoting it, if you go onto maps, you know, you can see prescription uh, 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 prescribing practices. And what happened to the prescribing practices of Dr. Mark and Dr. Berger? And they had lots and lots of clients. And so at Brighton Hospital, at one point, we were the biggest prescribers of Suboxone in the entire state of Michigan. How that happened? Because we had thought leaders in our, in our, in our treatment center. And they were brilliant, and they were underappreciated. And so when I told them, hey, Mr. Thought Leader, the drugs you're giving people, the parents are complaining. When they come to see their kid for visitation, the kid is nodding out and drooling on himself. And I think it's called inpatient intox. And the thought leader would say to me, oh, they're adjusting to their medication. So they go to Dollars for Docs, and I kind of run their names in there. You can look up their names and see what they're getting now. The, uh, the healthcare law now requires them to disclose who's giving them money. So I go to Dollars for Docs, and I see... $40,000 check from Purdue Pharma, $70,000 from AstraZeneca. So I'm like, hey, um, you shouldn't be doing that because every six months at Brighton Hospital, we have to say and disclose any conflict of interest. I feel that your money from Big Pharma is a conflict of interest. And they said to me, oh, those checks don't influence our prescribing. And I said, yeah, and lobbyists don't uh, influence Congress, right? Because everyone's just kind of doing it for the, for the good of the people. You follow what I'm saying? So this went on for a couple years, and Midge almost lost her job one day because she was honest as well. 
And I said, Raj, if you tell anybody that Suboxone is addictive or that it causes withdrawals, we're going to have your license taken away for you for practicing medicine without a license. And the problem is I have this really serious illness. It's called conic disorder. You guys know what that is? So conic disorder is an illness in the DSM-5 that people have rules with authority and problems with authority. And so my problem is I can't listen to authority. It doesn't make any sense. So I made sure every day I talked about Suboxone and told everybody that I could that it was addictive and causing withdrawals to it. And so later on, Dr. Dr. Um, uh, was it Berger that took over? Yeah. He actually changed their policy, got rid of their maintenance program, and now there's no, no Suboxone used for anything else but detox. You guys amazed by any of this at all? Yes. Yeah. All right, this is all real. You guys feel that we can arrest our way out of this problem? No. If we arrested all the alcoholics and all the people that are selling drugs, could we stop the problem? So we agree on that, right? Here's the thing. Um, sobriety court programs work and save lives. Drug court programs work and save lives. They're fantastic. It's a new change, and I can't tell you how many people are being helped by these programs. But I still deal with some judges that have an old-fashioned, antiquated way of looking at um, alcoholics and addicts, right? So imagine ideology. Ideology is a way of believing in something not based on facts or evidence. So if you were to go back to 1942 and meet a Nazi and say, Mr. Nazi, there's a whole bunch of problems with your ideology. There's all kinds of problems with the way that you're thinking. It's not right, and I can prove it. And what's Mr. Nazi going to say to you? I don't care. I'm an effing Nazi. This is what I believe, right? And so when I meet judges that only believe in punishment, I can say it shows here that you know, treatment, education, and prevention will help this person a lot more. If they go off to Oakland County Jail, they won't get any therapy or education. And that judge will say what to me who believes in the ideology of punishment? So what? I don't care. They do the crime. They do the time. In America, if some stuff rhymes, we believe it to be true. No, it's, it's weird, right? And so because that rhymes, they've got to go to jail with no help and no assistance, right? So you go to Oakland County Jail for your second and third DUI, and you do a year there, and you come out, and you do it again. Everyone gets confused. Well, why are you still doing that? Well, I didn't learn any coping skills. I don't have a written prevention plan. I don't have a sponsor. I don't have any tools to not drink and not use drugs. There's 2.2 million people in jail in America right now. 2.2 million, more than any other country in the world, more than China and India combined. And that needs to change. We cannot arrest our way out of this problem. Is that making sense? So that has to change. All right, and speaking of change, how do people change? Anybody sober? That's awesome. 24 hours is a miracle. How do people change? Why doesn't everybody get sober? Why isn't it easy? Any theories on it? Yeah, we got, right, so we got denial first, right? The first D is going to be denial. I don't want to believe I have a problem because if I have a problem, I got to do something. If someone comes to you and says, you know, if I go to you and say, hey, Lou, Raj, this is Raj, you know, Lou, I got a gambling problem. And Lou's going to say, Raj, get help and stop gambling. So if I tell somebody I have a drug problem, they're going to say what to me? Get help and stop using drugs. And if I don't want to stop using drugs, I can never, ever tell you I have a drug problem. That's the first D, right? What about this D called distract? When I do interventions, right? Guy comes into my, into my room and the family's there, everyone's crying, got tears in their eyes, and the girlfriend's there, the mom's there, dad's there, best friends are there. And the first thing he says is, I don't have a problem, this is nonsense, right? And then it finally admits he has a problem, and he says what? But dad's smoking weed, right? Or mom's got depression, or what? I got this other issue, right? Distraction. That's the second D. I'm going to distract. Look over here. Don't look at my addiction. Look over there. You know, look at mom's depression. You know, look at my sister. You know, she's not have, she doesn't have any friends. She's on the computer too long. Everything else but looking at me. And what's the third D after distraction? <laughs> Delay. Oh, my God, you're right. I do have a drug problem. I'm shooting too much heroin. I'm for sure going to go to Brighton Hospital. I just can't do it today because I'm so busy. So for sure, I'll meet you there Friday at 9 o'clock in the morning for treatment. I promise I'll be there. And some people are so good at delaying, they never, ever get help. And what's the worst D of all? That's the third D is delay. What about divide? Divide's the worst one of all. I can't tell you how many families that have lost someone to an overdose, then they divorce. Or when the kid's using heroin, they divorce. Addiction fractures and destroys good families. It's the ultimate insult to injury. It's really, really hideous to think about that. When people love and care about each other, but that addiction makes them second-guess each, each other. They point fingers at each other. So we have deny, delay, distract, and divide. Those are the four Ds of addiction. 
and each one of them has to be dealt with. So when we talk about you know, change, we're talking about courage and a method. To stop anything, you've got to have courage and a method. If you don't have enough courage, you can borrow some of mine, some of midges, or some will lose. But you've got plenty of courage to go around. And so when a person says, I'm going to stop using drugs or alcohol, I say, that's fantastic. How do you want to do that? And they say, well, I'm just going to use my willpower. I'm not feeling that. Willpower is not a method. AA is a method. FAN is a method. NA is a method. Church every Sunday is a method. You know, a healthy fitness routine with a trainer, that's a method. You got it, therapist, that's a method. Education program, method. You have to have a method to stay sober and get sober. In the beginning, it always begins with consequences. People stop using drugs and alcohol because of consequences. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my wife. The problem is that a lot of people in 12-step programs will rewrite their history and say, one day I woke up and I realized that alcohol was the problem and I went to my first AA meeting. No. No, that's not how it happened. That's not how it happened, and stop lying in front of my face. You know, Your wife told you one more beer and you're out of the house. You know, your boss told you one more beer, you're never going to work there ever again, right? The second phase of sobriety occurs, or change occurs, because of rewards. You meet a guy, he's got his DUI probation completed, drug court probation completed, right? And he's in there, when you see him the first year, he's like, I'm only here because of drug court. Everyone's like, oh my God, you can't say that. You have to be here for yourself. Then me and Lou are like, that guy's honest. He's doing really well, right? So the honest guy's there saying, I don't want to be here, sign my sheet. I don't want to be here, sign my sheet. One year of this goes on, and now he's done with drug court. And I look at the guy, I go, drug court's over with, why are you here? Oh, I like being sober. Do tell. I got more money. I'm more physically fit. My girlfriend's really happy with me. My mom smiles when I walk around. I got more self-esteem, more self-confidence. Hey, Raj, there's rewards to this staying sober stuff. Wow, that's really cool. So those two are external motivators, right? Consequences and rewards. The best motivator is the internal one, and that's values and morals. So I use this very dramatic illustration. It upsets some people, and I apologize for it. So I'm working with a heroin addict, and I'm talking to him. I said, all right, you know, you got about 30 days sober. Let me figure out where your morality and values are at. He's like, okay. And I say, I have heard that shooting puppies in the head is a lot of fun. Will you please shoot some puppies in the head and videotape it and bring it back to me? And of course the client says, you've lost your effing mind. I would never do that. So, oh, let me give you some consequences then. If you don't shoot puppies in the head, I'm going to put you in jail for a weekend. I would never do that. I'm doing the weekend in jail. All right, how about the other way? I'm going to give you a reward. If you shoot a puppy in the head, I'm going to give you $5,000. I'm not going to shoot a puppy in the head. Okay, the question, why will you not kill that innocent puppy? And the guy says this out loud. Because it's wrong. Stand back. How'd you learn that? Did you go to school? Did, it, did a college program teach you? Was that in high school? Was it middle school? Who told you that shooting puppies in the head was wrong? I said, well, nobody. But you know it, right? Yeah, I know it in my heart. I go, well, imagine if you felt that way about using heroin. Imagine if you felt that using heroin was so wrong, it was against your morals and your values as who you are as a man, that you would never do that again because that stuff killed your friend. See, the whole world can get high. Heroin can fall down from the sky, and everybody can shoot up right now. I'm not going to shoot up. And do you know why? Because that shit killed my friend, and it's symbolic to me. I'm never going to use that stuff again. It's an insult to his memory. If someone beat up your best friend on the playground, you don't go back in French kiss him. You follow what I'm saying? You don't do that. It's wrong. You leave it alone. It's part of your values and your morals. Do I sound weird? No. Okay. I'm trying to make sense here. So what do we need? My wish list, before we end, okay? My wish list, more sobriety courts, more drug courts. They have saved and changed so many lives I can't even tell you. They're remarkable. And the turnaround stories are long-term. They're not short-term. Recidivism rates go down dramatically. They're very helpful, okay? A good probation officer can equal 10 regular therapists. I'm telling you, it's a big difference. Now, what else do we need? Do drug dealers help create addiction? Yes, right? Because they, they sell the drugs, right? So drug dealers are a part and a component of addiction. Do we all agree with that? Yes. There can be no heroin addicts without heroin dealers, right? right? Okay, and we can't arrest our way out of this problem, right? So then why does 100% of all the proceeds of drug arrests still go to law enforcement? Why doesn't half go to a treatment? Imagine if we had a fund where half the money seized from drug dealers went to a fund for people that have no money for inpatient and outpatient treatment. We have no more excuses, right? No more money. Money wouldn't be an issue anymore. There's plenty of money. How about the last one here, right? 
misdemeanor charges, right? What's bad about being arrested in Michigan with a little bit of heroin, a little bit of cocaine, a little bit of methamphetamine? What's the charge? Felony. Felony. Zero to 50, right? If I got some scrapings on the mirror from my girlfriend, right? I get pulled over in Birmingham, what happens? You got felony cocaine possession. You do. Is that amazing? Other states, other counties, and other places have misdemeanor drug use charges. What's bad about having a felony? If you can't get a 9 to 5, you're probably going to get a 2 to 10. You follow what I'm saying? A lot of people that get sober get really frustrated because of their records. And so we need to begin people off with misdemeanor charges. Not starting at first off with a felony. Having heroin in your pocket isn't the same as robbing a bank. They're completely different crimes, but they're both felonies. And so anyone tells you, oh, you can go to McDonald's and get a job. Try that with a felony. You can go anywhere and get a job. Try that with a felony. One of the sad stories, a woman came into Brighton Hospital. She was 19 years old. And they had her admissions packet there, right? And when it says occupation, she wrote down dancer. And so three nurses were gathered around. And they're like, oh, my God, she's a dancer. She's a stripper. How would she do that? I, would, I work at McDonald's if I was her. I would never do that and degrade myself. And I walk over. I go, oh, let's have a look at the next page. Oh, legal history. Possession of cocaine felony. Possession of heroin felony. Possession of paraphernalia misdemeanor. I wonder how many McDonald's will hire this young lady. We put a lot of people that are trying to change in a predicament where they can't change and put them back into the very environment that makes them sick. Is that making sense? All right. I want to thank everybody for your time. I want to share a song with you. I've written a song called Fortune Favors the Bold, and my friend's going to put it up there. It's a song that's designed to uh, promote sobriety. The lyrics are going to be passed out by Kathy. I write a lot of songs, different styles, all that kind of stuff. Um, it took me six years to write this song. One day I was in the shower about six months ago. The lyrics came to me. My friend Greg Stryker, who's a local like, uh, famous musician, especially from the 80s, Greg Stryker, had 10 months sober when he sang the song. I think his voice is brilliant. I hope the words will touch you. Also, please go to my website, serenityhelp.com. There's all kinds of free information there, free audio, free video. And at the very end, Kathy's going to give out some books she has about 10 books to give away, and um, it's my honor to be here with you guys. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart to make a difference. Thank you for helping me fight addiction. Give yourselves a round of applause. first half of it, so nice. I have to buy one tonight. Yeah. But um, could you get a book in your yeah. hand? Um, yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Have a moment. Yeah. Nice sign. Yeah. Did I have to tell you? No. Nice sign. Do you have a copy of my book? Do you have one already? No, I'm, I'm going to get one. No, give me right now. Well, right now. Take I, it. I'll no, get my purse. No. Yeah, I, no, you need your purse. For well, what? Well, you need to be no. paid for this no, no, because the no, first no. half no. has been Please help me fight addiction. Please help me fight addiction. Well, I give to you. Please. Thank you so Please. Much. My son was uh, 16. Um, he had a point all eight. Right. Drunk driving. Wow. The other uh, driver died. He just wow. came home oh. after six years of prison. Jesus. Um, I want him to meet you. Sure, of course. He's got a therapist, yeah. you know, through prob uh, probation. Yeah. He is the most wonderful person you've yeah, ever met. Yeah, sure he is, yeah. But he's gone through a lot at a very young age. Way too much. You know, he's 22. Yeah. He's working, going to school right now, and he's been home about five months since uh, May 28th. Right. But um, can I... Like set up something. Of course you can. Yeah. Can, Give me. Like, a, can I have a card? I don't have any cards with me. I have my brochures around the table right there. With the phone number. Yeah, that? absolutely. Everything's in there. See, he's got a therapist. Yeah. But and, and Dan really likes him. That's fine. But However, I have a free program called the Recovery College Program. You can come out every Tuesday at seven o'clock. 
Yeah. So we can meet. I would just like him to meet. Right. It's all. Yeah. And it's free. But this therapist, um, and I don't know what his logic is, and I'm not hearing the whole thing. Okay. But he's saying it's okay. Dan's been doing this Mucinex thing. Doing what? Mucinex. What is that? It's uh, cough medicine. Why? Congestion. Yeah. I think it gets him high. Right. Um, is there DXM in that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You shouldn't be doing I'm that. I'm terrified. Yeah. And he's, this guy's telling him it's okay. No, it's not okay. No, it's not okay. No. He's doing everything that he should be doing. Yeah. He's going to school. Right. Staying on top of everything. Yeah. Not getting in trouble. Right. And working, you know. Yeah. All right. I you, don't want someone, but he's 22. Doesn't and matter. And he has to make his decisions. We, we should meet, though. That's all I'm asking a chance to meet. Usually when I meet people, things go really well. I know it will with yeah. you. I just know it will. So um, I'll get you yeah, Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. I have one thing that you yeah. can emphasize in the story. 